Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of The Transcript for Hopkins Biotech Network. Our guest today is Dr. Evan Guggenheim. He is currently the executive director and head of research operations at Sauna Biotechnology. Um, Sauna is a rising star in the biotech startup world that's dedicated to developing and commercializing more scalable and efficient methods for in vivo delivery of gene therapy components, in addition to developing allogeneic stem cell therapies to treat a variety of diseases. It's a pretty special company, um, actually, for several reasons. Uh, number one, even though it's a startup, it already has uh, more than 200 employees Um Secondly, it recently raised a, a unusually upside Series A financing round for about $700 million just this June, June of 2020, um, which is one of the largest initial financing rounds for a biotech startup ever. So that's pretty good. Uh, and thirdly, uh, many of the higher ups in the company actually hail from Juno Therapeutics, a CAR T startup that was acquired by Celgene in January of 2018. So a lot of the upper management has a lot of really, really deep experience in commercializing cell and gene therapies. Prior to joining Sauna, Evan worked as a scientist at a sequencing company called Intelligent Biosystems, which was acquired by Kyogen in 2012. He also worked at the large biotech company Biogen, where he rose through the ranks from the position of scientist to ultimately become Director of R&D Strategy and Portfolio Leadership. Evan, thank you for joining us on the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Evan, could you briefly introduce us to Sauna Therapeutics and perhaps what you're working on there? Sure, so yeah, so Sauna Therapeutics is approaching its second birthday. I've been there since the end of April. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a, it's a company started, as you said, by a number of folks who came from Juno. Uh, so a lot of the brain trust there uh, coming over. And uh, so, I mean, really the aspirations of the company, so trying to repair and control genes in any cell in the body um, and replace any cell in the body, like that's the vision. Um, and so doing so with some technologies licensed from various academics, as most startups would be, um, including some, uh, some uh, you mentioned allogeneic stem cell therapy. So figuring out ways that we can create you know, a single donor cell line that can go into any person without being rejected. Uh, and so the applications there are wide and, and actually that's one of the exciting things and, and especially from my perspective coming from the R&D strategy side of what do you do? Because you have this amazing platform, these tools that can do things that people have never been able to do before and you have to figure out how to apply those to ways that are going to, you know, make sure to affect the most amount of patients who, who are in need you know, keep your scientists happy, keep your investors happy. And so, uh, so that, and, and then on the gene therapy side as well, looking to figure out how we can really zero in and, and affect any cell in the body. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's sort of stealth mode. I think we're like definitely trying to get our science out there more, um, but uh, which you'll see in the coming months and, and certainly in the next year or so. So it's a, it's a really cool time to be at a company, especially one, you know, well-funded with, with a good group really bright people uh, and a good size group of really bright people to, to move things forward. 
And maybe one subtle thing, cell and gene therapies are relatively new therapeutic modalities. So, um, and one of the things that's uh, mentioned that Sana is doing is to work on doing allogeneic cell therapy. So what's the distinction between allogeneic cell therapies versus other cell therapies? Sure. So, I mean, so for example, some existing cell therapies to prevent uh, rejection, you could take cells from your own body and alter them in some way, whether it's, you know, for example, with CAR-T, you could you could engineer T cells to go after cancer. Uh, you could imagine taking cells, you know, and converting them to, to stem cells and then converting them to a cell type that your body is deficient or diseased and putting them back in yourself. And so that's, there's a lot of positives there because you don't have to worry about your own immune system saying like, these are foreign cells and trying to create an immune response and ultimately rejecting them on top of creating, you know, sort of a, a potentially dangerous immune reaction. Um, and so with allogeneic, there's a, there's a few ways to approach it. You could uh, have folks with a similar like immune system features to lessen the likelihood of having that interaction. And, and then you can engineer the cells in ways that, you know, there's been a lot of academic research around this at various universities, but how do you engineer them so that your body, so like you could take cells from a donor, like one donor, and give them to me, to you, to you, and our immune systems won't recognize them as foreign. And so that's, that's really, I mean, that would be amazing because for one, you know, it would really make it applicable across many diseases. It's hard on a patient and it's labor intensive and, and to take your own cells, do something with them and put them back in. And so you could imagine your, your glia are malfunctioning from a neuro, in neurological disease. You could take, you know, these glia that were not yours and they can be put into your brain and, and function and engraft and start sending messages as if they were yours. So a ton of potential there. So if, you, if we can do it, it'd be incredible because there's just so many amazing applications. So maybe taking a step back a bit, what initially sparked your interest in science and why did you later decide to pursue a career in industry as opposed to one in uh, academic research? Yeah, so that's a great question. I will say I always loved science. I mean, ever since I was a kid, Math and science, I just were, I was always drawn to those subjects. So, you know, right from, I mean, like elementary school, silly science project, not, I mean, really fun science projects, uh, right through, you know, when I started to have, you know, more separated sections of classes. So, you know, in high school, earth and space science, freshman year, I, you know, just felt very drawn to the work we were doing. It's not that I didn't like reading books and literature. I mean, I had some great teachers, um, but I just found like this like passion in science. And so that got me started on science, I think is a sort of a general topic. And actually in high school, I had a physics teacher who was incredible. I mean, he was, he wrote his own book because he didn't think any of the books were good enough. And I had all these stick figures and they were like, it's so clearly explained these complex things and just taking these complex ideas and and bringing them into these like simple components which is typically something you can do it was like amazing and so I didn't end up in physics for a lot of reasons but but the way that he taught like was inspired me so much that I was like I'm going into physics and then I just moved into chemistry when I got into college uh and I, again like a sort of like I had these great professors I was learning the ways I was it was really exciting what I liked about Anderson went into inorganic chemistry because I felt like it married chemistry, which I loved, and math, which I also loved. So I studied inorganic chemistry in college, and I loved the projects. But I did think to myself, like this, like the the jobs I would do after this, like a lot of them were like 
oil industry, uh, cosmetics, and I mean, those are great careers and there's people who've done amazing things and continue to do amazing things in those fields. But I didn't think like when things, when times were tough that I would have the same passion as for human health. And so when I went to grad school, I started working on a bio-inorganic chemistry program. So that brought me closer to human health. It was a cancer, actually working on a, a cancer drug or a cancer drug that's on, on the market for you know the last 40 years and we still don't quite know how it works. So, so that project was incredible and it brought me closer to human health, which was really exciting. When I was deciding between academia and industry, so I was thinking like, what are my values? And so when my having like a work-life balance where I can spend a lot of time with my kids, which I now have, I didn't have at the time, um, was really important to me. And, and, my, and also being in an area where I'd be close to my family. And I just thought, you know, if I move into industry, I, I have a better chance of being like, you know, I mean, I wanted to stay in like Boston, San Francisco, like the big industry areas. And so I saw the opportunity to do that. And I thought that I, that would be the direction I'd want to go. Um, so I have a lot of friends in academia and they're happy and they have, things have worked out well for them too. But, um, but yeah, it just felt like it was a better fit for me. Um, and also I really like the business side of things. And I found that even in grad school, I started being on the business side, talking to people about science. So I really actually ended up getting that, that, uh, I don't know if this is a thing, but like that teacher's high of like, you know, teaching someone something and like watching them understand it when I have to deal with folks who come from different backgrounds. And so in industry, I get a lot of that. You know, it's not just, you know, not that you don't as a professor, of course, because you have like freshmen coming in and, and learning a lot and then everyone's always learning, but, but like to work with someone who, you know, comes from like an engineering background or a business background and saying like, okay, here are the scientific principles you need to understand for this conversation to, to apply it to the, to the world that you live in. Uh, I really love that. And so, so I get to do that a lot. What initially had sparked your interest in business and did you like take any classes or do anything sort of extracurricular while you were a grad student to bolster that interest? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I did get involved a lot on the operational side of making the lab work. Um, and so, you know, dealing with vendors, helping with uh, figuring out what instruments to buy and which ones to replace and how to get people to be able to use instruments more efficiently. I got involved in all of those types of things. So I did get that sort of like the operations side of science. Um, there were opportunities to get more involved on the business side and I, and I didn't take advantage of them, but I think, you know, I, I regret that because I think I could have gotten better experience to, to help me grow uh, and, and I missed out. So after you completed your PhD in inorganic chemistry, you then went on to work at Intelligent Biosystems, uh, it's a company that makes instrumentation for high throughput sequencing. Uh, so how did you come across this opportunity and what ultimately motivated you to join that company? Yeah, so it was 2008. The job market was not great. Uh, I applied for a lot of jobs. Um, I also, so I used the career office at MIT, which was extremely helpful. So I applied to a lot of jobs. I took a number of interviews. Uh, I I did a terrible job of this, but I thought I was doing a good job of like tailoring my resume and cover letter to the job because um, it's hard. And this is to, to Jenna's good question before getting that business experience. I think you want to live in that other world for a minute to see what it's like from their perspective. Because if I thought, oh, I'm writing this resume and this cover letter, industry's going to love it. They're going to think all these things are really important. You don't know. I mean, if, I mean, there maybe there are more insightful people than me, certainly, but I did not know what it was that they valued until I lived it. And I was like, oh, these are the things I value. 
every hire is a risk-based decision. Uh, because if you, if you hire someone who's done the thing before, they're probably gonna continue to do that thing. And they may be pretty good at it, they may be really good at it, um, and, but they'll get it done. So like your boss will say, is that thing getting done? You're like, yes, we hired that person and now that thing is getting done. And so, you know, you don't, you're not in trouble. Whereas if you look at someone, you're like, okay, well, this is a person who seems like really high potential. They haven't done this before, but I think they can really make a huge impact. Maybe they can think about things from a different perspective. Now, if you hire that person and they learn really fast and they get up going and they make an incredible impact, you look great. But the other chance is that they'll come in, not really get a feel for how things are done and fail. And so if they fail and then your boss says, hey, is that thing getting done? You're like, no, I hired that person. You let me hire someone and I did. And, and they failed. It looks really bad. So like they say like, oh, we're looking for the brightest person and we don't care about background. But like, it's, it's easy to say that. It's really hard to live that. And so that's sort of something that I, throughout all of my career, I've been you know, sort of fighting against a little bit. I mean, I, my boss, you tell me how great I was doing. And then we look at a resume for somebody hired and be like, well, they don't have industry experience. I'm like, this is a scientist's one job. I mean, where are you going to get industry experience? Like, I just, like, you have to, you know, at some point there's like a feeder from schools and you have to take a risk that someone is not going to have industry experience, but they're going to adapt to it quickly. You bring up a really good point. Like I, I was looking on LinkedIn earlier, just at some job applications and it was exactly what you said, where it's like entry level position and you need five plus years of industry experience. So. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. But yeah. I will say, I will say that. So like, how do you de-risk yourself? That's, I mean, and, and it's like a very, like, it's not like a really enjoyable way to think about yourself, but like think of yourself as like a terrible risk that a company's taking on someone who's never been in industry that everyone rolls their eyes at because they can't believe that they're doing it. So how do you de-risk those? So for one, I think the skills uh, that, that the company's looking for, if you've done them, you should put them on there. If you've done X, Y, and Z, don't be ashamed to say it. If you're like, well, I did that two years ago and it was really only a couple months, you're smart. You can still do it. And if it's your every day, you're going to get really good at it. Now, I am and I'm truly biased in the belief that smart people can do whatever you ask them to do. And you don't need to have spent 25 years doing cell culture to do cell culture. I just don't think that. And so I think that's sort of like where, especially if it's like an entry level, like entry out of PhD level job, like the expectations will sound like overwhelming, but just like make sure that you highlight the things that you can do that, that they want you to do. And certainly if you've had any experience in industry, whether it's collaborations like SRAs or, you know, some actual like thing where you went off to a company and did some work um, and then network. I mean, like another way to de-risk is when they've spoken to you uh, and say like, oh, this person's, you know, able to hold a conversation. And so, so, you know, all of these ways you can de-risk yourself so that when you apply for that job, they're like, well, we have this person and they've done the exact same thing before, but then we have, Roshan, so he is just out of his PhD, but I talked to him, we had coffee. He seems really great and like super smart. And, you know, he's never done this or this before, but, you know, he's smart, I'll figure it out. And like that's, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt when they have that connection in some way. They're not going to give you that when it's just like, I have a hundred resumes of people who've done three of the four things I'm asking for. And then 50 where they've done all four. 
Yeah, that's a really um, interesting concept of de-risking yourself. What are the needs of the market and seeing how you can address those or even seeing um, what are the needs of a specific company and sort of reverse engineering what it would take to be effective in that role and maybe even trying to grow those skills so that you grow into the position. You know, as you grow and get more experience doing a lot of things, like there's so many different jobs out there that you don't even know you could eventually grow into. And so... Yeah, and actually, I mean, there's examples. So, like, I, I worked with a guy at Biogen, really bright guy, like, super brilliant, awesome analytical chemist. And at the, we were both in this analytical chemistry group. And we both were at that point in our career where it was, like, we were thinking, like, we should try something outside of analytical chemistry. Like, we should look at something else. And so we would be doing these, like, little projects where we'd be, like, maybe alliance management, like, with partnerships or, uh, you know, some operational things. And I went off and did one of those. Like, I was like, this is amazing. I love this. And I got applied for a job and moved into R&D and did this portfolio strategy. He did all these things. And I would talk to him and be like, I hate them. I hate all of them. I love analytical chemistry. I don't want to leave analytical chemistry. Everyone's telling me I need to expand my horizons. I don't want to. I love this stuff. And I don't want, and he's still doing it. He moved to a different company. He got promoted. He's doing great. But he's still doing it because he loves it. And he should not, like, he, again, like if he goes off and does some, you know, alliance management thing where he's managing relationships between two companies and trying to get people on his side all day long, he's going to hate it. When he gets to, like, manage a group who's, who are developing assays, he's going to be happy. And so I think that it's a, it's a good point. And, and you have, but you have to think about, like, what are your values across these different things? And then balance those. So one of the things that you mentioned in there, you uh, joined Biogen as a scientist, and then you sort of worked your way up ultimately to director of R&D strategy and portfolio leadership. So uh, my question to you is, how, how did you manage to climb the corporate hierarchy? Was it that you were sort of delivering results in your role and were recognized and promoted in that way? Did you follow opportunities that you saw within the company? How did you do that? So a lot of what I ended up doing was, was like relationship building. And so that could be internal and external. For example, when we had to like roll out an electronic lab notebook, no one wanted to do it. They didn't like working with IT. So people didn't want to do these things. And I was like, oh, I like software. Like, I think it's fun. I'll get involved in that. So I was lucky in that the need was there. It was something that I'm good at. And it also is something that got me like recognition. So when it comes to like a promotion cycle, PhD students are likely rolling their eyes at this, but someday you'll care. You'll you'll care very deeply about promotion cycles. Um, when when someone comes up for promotion, the the room that's making the decision is very unlikely to know that person very well. When your boss is thinking about who's up for promotion, like they want to find the people who are doing the best, most important work. But part of their mind is saying, when I mention this name in the room, what's it going to look like? And if people are going to be like. You're, you want this person to be a senior scientist? I've never heard that name before. Because let's say you're working in a lab and you don't like to give talks across the organization. It's a little bit harder to prove that that person is doing a great job. Whereas if it's like, oh, there was this headache, no matter how operational it was, there was this headache and Evan made that better. Then everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Evan's, he's great. Yeah. Seeing the opportunities and seeing that I could do a good job with them and the, and the fact that those impacted beyond our group were ways that really helped me move quickly uh, through Biogen. Coming from a neuro background as well, there's kind of this reputation that has been fueled where 
working in a neuro R&D space is inherently more risky. Based on this idea of de-risking yourself, I'm wondering what sort of strategies you had to implement when you were at Biogen in terms of picking either projects or therapeutic targets that were going to be less risky. So Biogen is a neuroscience company. It wasn't when I started, it was more than that. And, and you know, it will change over time, like every company changes in their focus. So, you know, they're, they're focused on this thing. And then this other thing happens and they're like, well, we, have, we can't just ignore that. Let's move a little bit this way, which is sort of the natural way that companies ebb and flow. Um, neuro is riskier for sure. Uh, but I will say, I think the, the advent of gene therapy and, the, and, and not just gene therapy, but different ways to manipulate specifically genetic disease. Not to say that all neurological diseases are genetic, very many of them are not. And I think similarly, diseases with good pharmacodynamic biomarkers, there are ways to really improve the likelihood that either if, if the thing you're doing is not going to work, you find out early, or to build the confidence preclinically. I love neuroscience. So working at a company that's really focused on it, as opposed to considering it sort of like, you know, we're an oncology company with some neuroscience side projects. I think that the job stability is going to be less powerful there, just because when times get tough and unexpected things happen, um, then those are the things that they're going to see as like, you know, we'll, we'll ramp that down a bit. When I was at Biogen, I think most of the work I was doing was on the entire portfolio. So between my time doing analytical development, which was I was working at first on all the biologic programs, and that expanded beyond just biologics, to when I was in portfolio strategy, I was focused on movement disorders, neuromuscular diseases. And so those are pretty big portfolios. So if any, you know, even if several ideas didn't pan out, there was still lots more work to do. Um, I think as a research scientist, if you look at a company really invested in neuroscience and, you know, with a broad portfolio where you have some like genetic diseases, some diseases where there has been some good clinical data that you can make, you know, you can work on making something better. I think that's like a good place to go. Or, you know, if you're just a startup, you just look at funding, like how much money do they have? I think every disease area is now going to have those places where people are like, oh, this new tool that we have is, can really make a difference here. And it, and it makes things a little bit easier across the disease spectrum. So you've now more recently moved from Biogen, which is a large biopharmaceutical company, to Sana, which is a startup company. I'm curious to know, how does the work environment differ between the two, first from your own perspective as an individual, and then secondly, from the standpoint of observing how the organizations are run? Sure. So yeah, I mean, I will say one of the reasons I wanted to move to a smaller company is I could do more a greater variety of things. Biogen has a lot of opportunities to go beyond the work that you're doing, but still at a company that size, you have several people to do each thing, right? So if you think about like research operations, you would have like, you have your vendor people, you have your alliance people, you have your uh, people who are worried about like capital management. So like all these different pieces are like, you have to have a whole person or several people to do all the work that needs to get done. So naturally there's a little bit of siloing when being in a smaller company, it's like, we don't have all of those pieces. It's just like, you, you have a room of good people and you're like, I'm a clinician, should I do it? You know, I'm a research operation, should I do it? You know, and so it gives you the opportunity to be like, yes, I'm gonna take that on. And so that's really one of the things I was very excited about because I wanna have that 
increased, like I want my resume to say more things because I want to have done like lots of fun, cool things that maybe I didn't, I mean, I could have done it at Biogen, but it would have required like, I'm going to do like a 20% rotation over here and I'm going to do a 20% rotation or I'm going to do a job shadow. Whereas here, like in a very like sort of official way, my boss was like, here's like three things I need you to do. And beyond this list of three, go solve the biggest problems and make them better. So that's been really exciting. I think the way that the companies are run, I mean, it's, I think it's naturally different. You just deal with all the different parts of the organization. Like I, you know, I talked to Biden CEO a couple of times, he seems like a really nice guy, but I you just don't have that same level of interaction with like the full broadness of the company. On that note, how do you find the work-life balance difference between, you know, working for a bigger company and versus now being at Sauna? Yeah. I, I, you know, so I haven't found it to be too different. I mean, I, I think it's, it's really company and group dependent. So for example, like right now with, with COVID, the folks in the lab are like working their butts off and they're coming in at all hours to try and make sure that there's enough space in the lab to get all the work done. They're doing an incredible job. And so to, I think for them, like I just, I, I feel bad saying like, oh no, work-life balance is pretty good considering what they're going through. But it's less about the like size of the company and more about like the part of the organization you're in and what the values are. So like I've, always brought it up at job interviews. It's a little bit awkward because um, I don't want them to think that I'm like, I don't have to work too hard, do I? Because it's very much not that. But at the same time, it's so important to me that I don't feel like I have to respond to emails and do make presentations all weekend long so I can spend time with my kids, that it's worth the risk that they're going to be like, is this guy really you know, trying to find an easy job? I try and keep the weekends mostly sacrosanct, but then at the same time, I've never let my boss down. This expectation is when I am needed, I do it. If I, I could be you know, in Hawaii on vacation and something comes up, I'll get it done. So Sauna is a cell and gene therapy company. So I wanted to ask you about one of the big macro trends in biotech right now. Currently eight out of the top 10 drugs by gross sales are antibody drugs. And the effectiveness of these types of drugs um, is something that when I first came into my PhD, it's something that I took for granted because they were already big. But actually, as I learned more about the history of uh, monoclonal antibody-based drugs, it really told a different story. Uh, Decades ago, these types of antibody-based drugs, they used to be manufactured at scale by actually harvesting them from animals and this was a process that was very costly, inefficient, and it presented a lot of species-specific immunogenicity risks. It was not necessarily a, a winner for sure in terms of therapeutic modality, but a key inflection point for antibody-based drugs was really the ability to overexpress antibodies and purify them from human cell lines. So it actually turns out that last year in 2019, the CEO of Sauna, Steve Har, actually came to speak at Johns Hopkins. I think he actually got his MD at Hopkins. He said that cell and gene therapies are at the cusp of experiencing their own inflection point, similar to um, the inflection point experienced by antibody-based drugs in terms of manufacturing and drug delivery. And he hoped that Sauna would play a big role in that. So uh, my question to you is, could you offer us um, your perspectives as to where you think cell and gene therapies are today in terms of their maturity as a therapeutic modality? Um, maybe what barriers have yet to be overcome? 
Sure. So if Steve said it, it's definitely true. Uh, so I'll start there. No, uh, I mean, I, I, I do agree with them, actually. I think, um, I think the challenge that you mentioned with the manufacturability of antibodies, uh, monoclonal antibodies to use as therapeutic, was a big challenge to overcome. Actually, monoclonal antibody manufacturing continues to evolve. And I know companies are looking at things like alternative hosts and you know, some of the stuff I've seen from like Chris Love at MIT is doing like these incredible things of like, could you have like antibodies created on like the back of a Humvee in like a war zone? And like all these like incredible things that um, that are being worked on, even for a medical device. So the innovation is not over there, but it's certainly, it's gotten to the point where they can deliver large amounts to big patient populations uh, in an effective way. Um, and that's everything from producing them to formulating them in a way that you can keep them safe to use you know, with the logistics of shipping them all over the world and having them, you know, not everywhere has like a Johns Hopkins hospital nearby and how do you make sure that people can still get those drugs. Um, I would agree. I think for gene therapy, I mean, I do think that manufacturing is a challenge. I think one of the challenges right now is, is just capacity, especially as there's going to, as gene therapies evolve for bigger patient populations. So far, I think it's been either like really small doses for things like ocular disease or smaller patient populations uh, for things like SMA, is that changes, capacity will expand. I don't know how much, and I'm sure some people in like process development would, or manufacturing would, would be laughing at me right now, but I don't think it's, the need is as much like innovative new ways of doing it. I think it's, it's, I think there is a lot of room for that, but I think we can serve many, many diseases with the technology we have now, it's just, we could probably just scale it. So like you could do what biologics did and have these like 15,000 liter reactors and like that, and just that's how you can produce more. You could also come up with much more efficient ways to produce them and then, you know, but I think we can, between the size of the sort of the bioreactors we can work on and and the and the, the increases in titer that we're getting through just like the technology innovation that's going on. I think we can get to the point where production isn't the problem. It's more, uh, I think delivery is more of the issue. So for example, like AAVs tend to go to the liver. And so if it's not a liver disease, you know, you're not getting, so, so it's all, you know, and, and the way to think about it is therapeutic window. So with a gene therapy, you want to change the gene in the cell that is sick um, or the cell that is producing the, the toxic event. Um, but changing the gene elsewhere is only bad because you could have insertional oncogenesis or you're just changing the nature of a cell that you, it's fine. And so there's always a risk that you're gonna do something. So as you increase the dose to get to the target cells, you're increasing the amount you're hitting off target cells. And so in that sense, delivery is a question. So, you know, for example, for neurological diseases, you can uh, use intrathecal injection and that assume that it doesn't get into deep brain as well as it does like the spinal cord. And so, yeah, so, so you have to inject more and then you're starting to affect other cells. So I think it's more, to me, the issue is more, how do you specifically affect the cells that you want? Uh, whereas like, I think the, the example you mentioned with antibodies was more, how do you make enough so that we can give it to people? Um, I think with cell therapies, I know like a big issue is rejection. And so um, how do you get cells that are gonna, that you can deliver where they need to go that are gonna not cause an immune reaction and that immune reaction will be one of the reasons why they die, but why else do they die? And what can you do to prevent that from happening? And so those are areas of technology that SANA is in. So I think that's one of the reasons that 
like Steve was really zeroing in on that, and, and it's a really good point. Which, but I think it's a, I think it's a little different than the monoclonal antibody story, just in that. I think if if we made effective therapies that got over the toxicity issues and the and the engraftment and you know persistence issues of cell therapy, factories would be built, and we could make and we could start making those things. There are certainly examples where diseases are just too big to make enough gene therapy, and we're going to have to innovate how we make them. Um, but I think there's a lot, I think a lot can come out once we figure out how to wrangle those things. I think also there's things about toxicity of gene therapies that we just don't understand. There's the like known unknowns uh, where you just don't know, like, you know, we, you, you see things in patients and you just say like, you know, what is that? Why is that happening? And how do we get that to stop happening? So yeah, so you have to start just like learning what it is you don't know. And and so I think, the, I think we're moving in that direction. It's an exciting time to be there. Um, for sure, but but I think you know we're, we're on the cusp of making some really big headway in the things that we know cause problems with these therapies. Since we're talking about you know biologics and in particular gene therapies to the public's mind, it's very clear that these are the most expensive drugs in production. And I know one of the principles for SANA is to improve patient accessibility to these drugs. And I was just wondering if you could talk about a little bit how your company actually approaches making these drugs more accessible, even though they are, you know, these top of the lines are what will hopefully be, you know, really successful top of the line therapies one day. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think, uh, well, I mean, for one, I'm, I hope that the, the world of healthcare looks different by the time we get through clinical trials. Um, but I do think it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's about building an innovative company that can continue to drive new ideas and drugs into the clinic, you know, maybe this is like, this is a take my sauna hat off here. And But I'll start with the idea. I'll just throw the idea of like value-based medicine. Like that's something that appeals to me as a person because I just think like, how do you repay someone for saving someone's life? Like, it doesn't make sense. I would always like, I whenever those arguments would come up at the places I've been involved, like, yeah, we'll worry about that later. Commercial will deal with that at some point, but let's fix these patients first. Uh, which is not always, I mean, like, I guess that was an unpopular opinion, but like, you know, at some point, at some level, you have to think like about sustainability of the ink of the company's uh, revenue. So it's, it, it's a, I think it's going to be a challenge. Now, I think everyone should have access to the medicine that they need and the repayment should be based on things like how much money you're saving the healthcare system. That won't always work. Um, you know, certainly for like diseases that have like, very early fatality. Like you, you're not saving the healthcare industry that much money. What you're doing is you're extending a life in a way that was like never thought could be possible. And we should be doing that. There's no question. I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement. But, um, but I do think I think that is a real challenge of how to balance those things. And I think we just. I mean, I think the healthcare, the way that healthcare runs in the United States, has to change a bit to make it really sustainable. Um, because, and, and then I think the other side of it too is when you think about the prices of these, it's like this, it's such a convoluted system. And one that I will preface that I don't understand as well as many people, but it's such a convoluted system that when you hear the price tag, no one's paying that. So it's, it's just like this, it's almost like what you're asking, when, you, when they say the price, they're saying their initial negotiation with insurance company is this. That's, that's what that number means, which is like, you know, it just, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to drive like good decisions from, from non-concrete things like that. 
Is there any other additional advice you would give to PhD students or younger early career scientists that might be looking to enter an industry space? Yeah, I mean, I think it just talk to lots of people. It's just, you know, and, and, and so find them through alumni networks, through LinkedIn, people who you know that know other people, and just, just talk to them. You'll learn a lot about um, what, it is, what, what they get out of their work, and it can help you sort of balance your values and say, what are, you know, like, what is it that I'm really looking for? Like, when you hear someone talk about doing, like, a like really cool science that isn't the work that you would be doing, like, what, what if I was doing something like that? Like, could I still be happy? And, or when you hear someone say like, oh, you know, it's been like backbreaking works lately. Like how do these different, like how, some people might find that exciting. Oh, cool. Like we're really digging in. So just talk to lots of people and, 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 and then when you start looking, I mean, several of the jobs I found, I had a foot in the door because I had just by chance talked to somebody in an elevator or at a career development seminar who ended up in that group and could speak on my behalf. So, um, so yeah, so I highly recommend just getting out there, talking to people. I know when you're doing your PhD, it's like incredibly busy and you're stressed out, um, but you know, find the time to get a cup of coffee. Well, maybe not now, get a cup of coffee, but get a virtual cup of coffee with someone. Maybe it's easier now because you don't actually have to go anywhere. You can just say, you're like, oh, you're in California. No problem. Let's chat. Learn like you're reading papers, like just, soak in all of that good information and, and start to process it in your brain and, and sleep on it and think about what you're looking for. And, and then when you finally figure out what you're looking for, you'll probably know someone who's doing it or who knows someone who's doing it. And then you have a problem. Thank you, Evan, for sharing your perspectives on biotech with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermane. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>